Hey guys, and welcome to Wholescale, the podcast for real estate investors and agents where we talk about how to generate more leads, convert more of them into deals, and all of the failures we've had while bringing iSpeed to lead from zero to 10 million in sales. Almost every investor, agent, or wholesaler runs into this problem where they start to get a foundation below them and they get a consistent amount of deals every month but they can't scale beyond it. It's this invisible plateau, the ceiling that they can't seem to break through. So today we're gonna to be covering exactly how to solve that problem and set your team foundation up so that you can be successful long-term and it makes it so much easier to scale into, into really high amounts of deal flow. So my buddy, he already has a pretty high performing team. They do 10 to 15 deals a month all across the US. They get their leads from a source called SEO. SEO stands for search engine optimization. And I'm not going to get into that this episode, but it's a really high quality lead source. He was getting a couple hundred of them a month, which is a ton. And the problem he was facing was his sales staff couldn't handle the lead flow that they were getting. So the natural solution was he needed to start hiring more people into the business. And so that is what he started to undertake. But he began to run into some problems. The first problem that, that he ran into is that he was having trouble finding the right people to fit his roles. He was finding people that were really fantastic at talking to people, and they seemed like they'd be a fantastic fit with a team, but they weren't able to take over the entire skill set that he wanted his sales staff to have. So was, he was having trouble hiring people. On the back end, his staff that were already really high performers, they started to have a decent level of turnover. And it really wasn't any fault of his own. The culture there is fantastic. But realistically, what was happening was these people were getting to a point where they, the only spot for them to grow was to go off and build their own business. And that happens. That happens in any business. And honestly, it's a mark that you're doing a good job as a business owner when these people feel comfortable enough to do that. But as a business owner, it can pose a problem because not only do you not have these people on your team, well, now they're kind of going out and becoming your competition. The other problem that he's having is that right now, there's no secret that the market is in a downturn. And with this downturn, a lot more of his deals were falling through a title just because they couldn't find buyers. The prices weren't coming in um, what they needed them to. There's a lot of variance through it. Some of his staff were a lot better at running their numbers. Some of them are really bad. And it was just a bit of a problem. So he reached out to me and said, hey, man, I'm having trouble scaling my sales team. Could you just come take a look at my process and tell me what I'm doing wrong? Like, there's just something that's not clicking. Of course, I said, sure, I'll take a look. So I went in, I dove in. And first I asked him, well, what is like the lead flow look like when they come to them, when, it, when the leads come to the sales staff, how do they handle it? So they have a system called Shark Tank and how Shark Tank works. Whenever a lead comes in, it, every single one of the sales staff gets an alert. The first person to claim that lead, it is now theirs and their responsibility. So they're going to be following up. They're going to be nurturing. They're going to be doing the contacting and it's their job to get everything done until they get the contract signed. Now, that in and of itself isn't a bad model. In fact, I see a lot of high-performing teams doing it because it incentivizes whenever a lead comes in, get on it right away because otherwise somebody else is going to steal it from you. You're not going to get them food on your table that you want. So that's a good process. Nothing wrong with that. So then I was like, all right, let's take a look here and listen to some of these sales calls. He sent over a couple of them from uh, his lowest performers and his high performers. And what I noticed is that every single one of them, they went for a one-call close, right? So what's a one-call close? That is where you're going to be putting a, an amount of pressure on that person to get the contract signed then and there. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's only to be used situationally. So that was something that I clued into. But the other thing, and this is what I think was the biggest problem, is that he was having his staff run numbers while on the phone at the same time. 
this posed a ton of issues. Why? Well, first, you cannot multitask as well as you think you can. And hiring somebody who can multitask is even more difficult. So when you're running numbers, you can't focus on the conversation as well. So you miss opportunities to build rapport, listen to the seller, and actually understand the problem. And then secondly, you can't run your numbers as well because you're trying to focus on the conversation as well. And if you're going for a one-call close, well, now you're under a time crunch and you feel like you have to rush through running these numbers. And this is the model most wholesalers, investors, and agents run. But the thing is, it is the worst way to do things. Here's the example. Think of a car dealership, something that has been refined for decades and decades. The system they have now is better than it's ever been. So say you walk onto the lot and a salesman approaches you and you start shopping cars with them. They're going to walk you through the lot. They're going to be talking to you, trying to understand what problem you're trying to solve. So why you're trying to buy a car. And they're going to be trying to offer the best solution that they have at their disposal to get you to buy a car with them. Because that's how they get paid. What you'll notice is that when they're talking to you on the lot, they're not talking about numbers and financing and what you can afford and what you can't afford, right? They're only going to ask those qualifications to understand what you need, but they're not going to be diving in and, and worrying about all that. The real magic starts to happen once you find a car that you think you like and they take you back to their office and you guys start discussing numbers there. Hey guys, quick interruption here. I truly hope that you're enjoying this podcast and finding it valuable because I put a ton of work into making it the best that I possibly could. So if you guys are finding value in it, it would mean the world to me if you could go and share it on either your Instagram story or Facebook story and tag me in it so that I can repost it. It would mean the world to me if you did it because I don't sell a course, I don't plan to sell a course, and this is going to be my pathway to giving back to the community that's given so much to me. Anyways, guys, we're going to get back to the show now. Thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Here's what they're going to do. First, they're going to do a credit pull on you. This is a double-edged sword for them, right? First, they're going to be able to figure out if you're actually qualified to buy. But second, now you're not going to walk away from the situation. You've got that credit pull on you. You don't want to have to walk away and go get your credit pulled somewhere else. The next thing they push you into is going to be a loan application. Once you get that application in, you're involved in that. You don't want to walk away. But the third thing, and this is the most beautiful thing, those sales staff aren't underwriting those loans. They pass those off to the finance department. And this is a really, really beautiful tactic for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it allows them to make it an us versus them mentality, where the salesperson is on your side trying to get you approved with the finance department. So when the finance department comes back with their first offer, if you're not happy with it, then the salesman will be like, you know what? No, I mean, this is just not fair. I'm going to go to bat for you. We're going to go back there and I'm going to get this solved. He goes back. And then what he does is he doesn't care. He wants you to buy that for more. He wants you to buy the car for more money because he gets paid more, right? He, he honestly, what the, what the finance department does is they're already going to have pretty much all the offers ready the first time they run their numbers. But what he does is he goes back there to sweat you out because he knows that you're impatient. You want to get out of there. You're tired of dealing with this. And he's just making you sit in his office for 10, 15 minutes. Well, he's probably back there shooting the shit with the finance department manager. And then when he comes back with his next offer, well, now you're more committed because you've been waiting there for longer, right? Lost cost fallacy. So that way, if you put all this time in, you don't want to have to walk out of it. Second, he's gonna, you're going to feel like there's some reciprocity there because he's gone and built uh, or, you know, fought for you at the finance department. Um, and, and just amongst another, a number of other things, you've been sweated out inside this room. And then what they're going to do is if you don't like that offer, they're going to do it again. And they keep escalating this and making you wait longer until you make the decision that, you know what, I'm tired, this is good enough, let's go. And they're going to get a better deal, you're going to buy a car, everybody goes home relatively happy. 
So my question is, why don't the majority of wholesalers do something like this? There's a lot of dumb people who are fantastic at talking to people who would be good sales staff, but they can't run the numbers. And because of that, they don't fit in your team and they're going to wash out. On the flip side, if you have somebody inside your team whose job it is to specifically run numbers, well, guess what? You're, you're going to get more consistent in your offers because that's that person's entire job. If that's all they spend their day doing is underwriting these deals, they're going to get to know exactly what offers work and what don't. You can pay for them to go through specific training. You can do all these things to leverage their skill set and build their skill set into running better and better numbers, into learning different offer types so how they can get a good offer for an ovation or a creative deal, all that. And now you are going to be able to scale. On the flip side, remember how my buddy was having the problem where his top level sales staff were leaving the business because they knew everything and they figured they could do it themselves and make more money? Well, now when you get somebody in your business and you teach them how to do the sales, but you hold this uh, finance thing away from them, they don't know how to do that. They're so much less likely to leave because they don't have that skill set in play. And if they don't have that skill set in play, how are they going to compete with you? And if you're making good commission there, they're making six figures a year because they're a fantastic salesperson. Well, guess what? They're going to be very inclined to stay. And those entrepreneurial tendencies are going to be more quelled. Finally, when you're on the phone with the sellers, it allows you to have a more structured process to where you can create that us versus them mentality. So I'll tell you exactly how I have it structured in my business and how you should have it structured in yours. So for mine, I have my leads come in through paid ads. And when they're coming in through paid ads, you can get a whole slew of information. A lot of them are going to be very high quality, high intent, but sometimes people just put random stuff in the form because they don't want to be reached out to. So what I do is I break my business down into phases or my sales process down into phases. We start at phase one. It's the beginning. Phase one starts with just my sales staff verifying the information on that lead, making sure that it's correct. They want to make sure that it's a real house, it's a real owner, it's a real phone number, but they're not running numbers on it, right? Huge difference. Just making sure that it's real and making sure the first name is where the first name is supposed to be. The last name is where the last name is supposed to be. And once they have all that, now it has been, uh, it's gone through phase one. The checkbox is completed that, hey, we got this thing verified. It moves to phase two. What happens inside of phase two is what we call um, reigniting the intent to sell. Just because somebody filled out a form doesn't mean they necessarily want to sell. Maybe they just want to figure out the value of their home. Um, maybe there's a number of other factors going on. They're not actually interested. They're just a tire kicker. It happens. So what we do inside of this phase, we, my sales staff have one goal, and that is to get this person to say, yes, I do want an offer on my home. What this allows me to do is write automated text messages that go towards the goal of getting these, uh, um, getting this intent to sell reignited. We can write automated email messages that go out and allows my sales staff to have a very similar conversation with each of these people. One thing to note is that in one conversation, you can cover multiple of these phases, but it makes it a lot easier to break it down. So phase two is just reigniting that intent to sell. Then they move into phase three. Phase three is where we collect our data. Now, this is a key part right here because a lot of uh, a lot of sales staff on the phone, they don't have a regimented, documented approach to how they collect the data from their sellers. And then what happens is now that they don't have a standardized set of data, you can't actually get a standardized offer out because you have different data for each seller. Right. Maybe this one you didn't for you didn't remember to get what the roof condition was like. And you're just kind of running basic comps, but you don't have an exact formula that's going to tell you what you need to do. Makes it really tough to scale that. So what we have inside of phase three is we push our seller to fill out a form that's pretty intensive. 
It's going to be 45 questions. It takes them 20 to 30 minutes to do. And they have two ways they can do it. We either send them a link. They come to our website and fill it out from there. We create a profile for them and they fill it out. Or the second thing that they can do is they can get it filled out verbally on the phone with that sales staff. And it's just premise that, hey, this is going to feel like a survey. I'm just going to be asking all the questions. This is what we need to make our offer. What this allows us to do is have standardized data. But remember how at the auto dealership, when they bring you deeper into the process, they're going to make you, uh, they're going to do a credit poll. They're going to get the loan application done. This is exactly what's happening here. When, they, when you get them to fill out this form, now they feel like they've committed to the process. They're significantly less likely to back out. In fact, if you guys ever are competitive with Opendoor, you'll see exactly this. They said, yeah, you know, I, I just scheduled the virtual interview with Opendoor yesterday, so I'm going to wait and see what they come back with. Or Opendoor just had their virtual interview today, so I'm going to wait and see what they come back with before I accept your offer. So they're actively turning away your competitors or you in this instance to work with the people who have them committed to the process. That's a huge benefit. What happens now after we get them to collect that information or after we collect the information from them, we send them to phase four and phase four is the underwriting. So we get sent over to our underwriters who then are going to underwrite the deal and figure out exactly what they need to do to get the perfect offer. From there, they put together what we call an offer sheet. An offer sheet is simple. It's just a cheat sheet for the salesperson and it's gonna give them all the different offer types that they can give in escalation. So you're gonna start with the lowest price one and move to the highest price one. Once they have that offer sheet, they send it back to the salesperson who has rapport with the seller and then that, uh, that salesperson is going to call that seller back and get them scheduled where they know every single one of the decision makers is going to be there to hear the offers. We never just randomly send out offers to people. We only give people offers when we know they're going to actually sign on the dotted line. That's it. It makes things a lot easier. If you just send a contract that sits in somebody's mailbox, they're never going to sign it. So now once we get all the decision makers there, we can start to have this conversation about the numbers and figuring out what's going on. And if they don't like the offer, here's where you can start to sweat them out. If they don't like the offer, you can come in and say, ah, man, you know, we never do this, but I just really like the house. Let me ask you about X, Y, Z. And they just ask some random question about the house that really isn't that important, but they make it seem like it is. And then when that person's like, oh man, you know what? Or the salesperson, I guess, let me clarify. The salesperson's like, oh man, you know what? That actually changes some stuff. Let me go back to the finance department. I'm going to put you on hold for five minutes because they're in the office right now. And I'm going to see if we can't get a better offer. Put them on hold, sit and wait. You already have the offer sheet with your escalating offers. You just wait. That's it. Then after five minutes, you come back, you unmute yourself. And by the way, a huge thing that happens here is oftentimes when you put them on mute, those people don't think that you can hear them, but you can so if you have all the decision makers there, they start talking to each other. And when they're talking to each other, they're going to give you information like, yeah, you know, if they gave me X, Y, Z, well, I'd be happy with it. The salesperson comes back, they give them the next offer up, or maybe it's a different offer type where it's say, hey, then we're going to pitch innovation, then we're going to pitch a creative deal. And they're trained on how to pitch all this stuff. And that allows them to have this systematized process and it allows them to keep rapport with the sellers. And it doesn't seem like they're the ones giving them the lowball. So then at the end of this conversation, it comes to one of two outcomes. One of the outcomes is that they like one of the offers. You're going to get a contract signed on the dotted line. Boom. You're in the exit strategy now. Get that thing sold. Get your money. Or they don't like any of the offers. Here's where a lot of people go wrong. When they don't like any of the offers, you don't just discount them and never follow up with them again. What you do is you put them inside of an automatic uh, drip sequence that'll hit them once a week, maybe once a month. And once they do that, now, you can, you can just keep in touch with them because eventually they might become more realistic. 
Maybe they're going to get in contract with another wholesaler or another investor who falls through. And you want to know all that because you are consistent with them. Just because they're not ready for your offer now doesn't mean they will never be in the future. And if you don't follow up with those people, you're going to miss out on a lot of money. So guys, that right there is how you can set your sales team up for success. I really hope you guys enjoyed listening. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and one thing that I'm building right now is my Instagram. If you guys enjoyed this, come and drop a follow on my Instagram at Liam B. Closing because I'd be closing. Thank you guys for listening. You guys are amazing and fantastic and beautiful. Can't wait for the next one. See you guys. Peace.